If you're listening to the history of Vikings, you're doing so via the internet. Today's episode is sponsored by Atlas VPN, a company created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. From blocking malicious links, ads, and trackers, notifying you when someone is trying to steal your data, to protecting your devices and allowing you to access worldwide content on platforms such as Netflix while traveling abroad, Atlas VPN has got you covered. There are over 6 million people using Atlas VPN across the world, and you could be one of them by following the link in the description of this episode, which gets you Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. You're using the internet to listen to what I hope is your favorite history podcast. Atlas VPN was created to make the internet accessible and secure for everyone. Follow the link in this episode's description to get Atlas VPN for just $1.99 a month for three years, plus a 30-day money-back guarantee. Many thanks to Atlas VPN for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to the History of Vikings. For years on this podcast, we've talked all about the age of the Vikings. We've explored all of the facets, I shouldn't say all, many of the facets of those seafaring raiders and traders from Scandinavia during the Middle Ages. Well, today we're going to be talking about an age before the Vikings. What was going on in Scandinavia before the Viking Age begun? And my guest today is Dr. Tom Shippey, a British scholar who has taught at six universities in Britain and America, including both Oxford and Harvard, and who succeeded Tolkien many years later in the Chair of Medieval Literature at Leeds University. Dr. Shippey is widely considered one of the world's leading academic scholars on the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, about whom he has written several books. Dr. Shippey is also an expert when it comes to the Age of Vikings, and as we'll hear about today, the chapter of Scandinavian history before the Viking time. Well, Dr. Tom Shippey, it's so good to have you back on the podcast. Well, good. I'm glad to be here, Noah, and uh, get a chance to talk to people. We're very pleased to have you. So tell us, Dr. Shippey, kind of set the stage for us, if you would. Um, what was happening in the North before the Vikings? Well, I think uh, the general historical opinion is uh, not much. And uh, if there was things happening, uh, well, we don't know about them. Between the uh, fall of the Roman Empire, call it year 400 plus, and the age of the Vikings, call that 800 minus, we have um, effectively no documentary evidence for what was happening in Scandinavia at all. There's a couple of um, hints or rumors which uh, reach 
uh, chroniclers and historians, you know, in the South, uh, uh, Jordanes, who wrote his history of the Goths, he knows something about it. Uh, um, Procopius, who the Byzantine historian, he knows something about it. But actually, they contradict each other. Um, I suspect that actually both of them are talking about the same event, but they've got hold of different aspects of it. So although they appear to contradict each other, it was probably something complicated going on and they didn't know what it was. But apart from that, we've really got uh, nothing at all. When things started to uh, be recorded, it was usually as a result of um, missionaries heading for Scandinavia. And uh, it started, I guess, with Anglo-Saxon missionaries like St. Willie Broad, but he was really operating in the Netherlands and North Germany. Later on, there was a mission to Denmark uh, headed by St. Ansgar, but actually Ansgar was uh, 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 801 to 65. So actually, he's already part of the Viking period. Before the Viking period, we've got uh, very little information indeed, at least very little documentary information. What can Beowulf tell us about what was happening? I think some people are keen to reference uh, this piece of literature when talking about the time before Vikings, but can it tell us anything? Well, um, actually, my response there is even more uh, definite. Uh, the general opinion in literary circles and in historical circles is that Beowulf can tell us absolutely nothing about the period. They all say the same kind of thing. Uh, uh, um, a Swedish uh, historian, he says... Uh, um, quote, uh, Beowulf is useless to the student of history. Um, uh, the editors of the recent edition of Beowulf say it does not provide reliable historical fact. And another scholar says uh, the search for Danish history in Beowulf is the search for a chimera. In other words, a mythical animal. So um, um, really, the, the opinion is pretty solid. Um, um, if you think you can get any history out of Beowulf, you must be an idiot. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, Dr. Shippey, you wrote a book entitled Beowulf and the North Before the Vikings. What prompted you to write this book? Well, um, uh, I think there are several several reasons. Uh, one is that I think the, the, the general literary consensus is really rather lazy. And I would also say, and you remember that I am supposed to be a, a scholar of Tolkien, I would say this is mostly Tolkien's fault. He, people forget what a persuasive person he was. He sent everybody barking up the wrong tree. And what he did in 1936 was he gave a, a very famous lecture to the British Academy in which he said, one, we must not consider Beowulf as a historical document, which is what people had been doing. We must uh, see it instead as, as, as it is, which is a fantasy. And third point, very strongly, and fantasy about dragons and trolls is a perfectly valid literary genre. And everybody's believed him ever since. Yeah, okay. Let us think about this for like two minutes. Um, uh, Tolkien gave this lecture on the 25th of November, 1936. Now, who at that point had a really strong motive for saying that fantasy was very important and stories about dragons deserved to be taken seriously? Could it be someone who had been writing in secret about dragons and trolls and goblins for 20 years, and who furthermore had just 
kick-started the process of going public by handing to his publishers on the 3rd of October 1936 uh, the manuscript of a story about, well, dwarves and elves and trolls and a dragon and, of course, a hobbit. Well, that was Tolkien. So, like I say, who had a really strong motivation for saying, go for fantasy, forget the history? Well, the answer to that is pretty obvious. And I'm not disagreeing with Tolkien. I'm just saying that the one does not exclude the other. Of course, it's a fantasy, but it's not just a fantasy. Okay, so that's, that's, that was one reason. And there was another reason, really. Um, things have happened since Tolkien wrote. I mean, 1936 is, uh, what's that? That's 86 years ago. Okay, so things have happened since then, and uh, especially in archaeology. It's the archaeology that uh, makes the difference, I think. And uh, I know we don't have any. I kept saying we don't have any documentary evidence for what was happening before the Vikings, but we sure have a lot of non-documentary evidence. And some of it is very big and obvious evidence as well, as we can show in a minute, I dare say. So... Um, uh, I wrote the book, really, to uh, challenge the, uh, the consensus, which I think is old and, to tell the truth, rather lazy. Because what Tolkien really told people was, since it's a fantasy, you can all make up your own story about it. You can say it's allegorical, you can say it's symbolic, you can say it's sociological, you can do anything you like, but you don't need to know anything. Um, and that, of course, I think was terribly popular among the circles of literary critics. But I think actually you do need to know things. And uh, that needs to be, that's something that people need to be reminded of. So why do you think Tolkien was wrong? And did he himself, you know, did he himself take the poem as history seriously? Yes. Actually, I should have said that. I would even say that in 1936, when he gave his big lecture, Tolkien was kidding he was kidding his audience. It's really, Tolkien had a strong sense of humor, actually, and uh, he thought some of these things were kind of funny. For instance, at one point he says, arguing for dragons as opposed to heroes, um, in recent years, there have been more than one poem written about dragons, but none, I believe, about, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yet there had been more than one poem about dragons. There had been two, precisely two. Tolkien wrote one of them himself, and the other one was written by his best friend, C.S. Lewis. So what he was really saying was, well, what the hell? I like dragons, and what's more, so does my best friend. But this isn't a very powerful argument, is it? So he was, he was kidding. And um, when it comes to history, we know, actually, he took uh, Beowulf very seriously. In fact, I think he took it more seriously than I do. But we know that because of the publications which came out after his death, the posthumous publications. And the trouble is that uh, people haven't read them much. If they have read them, they haven't taken them in. It just hasn't. Well, all I can say is I feel I'm having a kind of dialogue with Tolkien, but I'm also having a kind of dialogue between Tolkien young and Tolkien old. And uh, uh, Tolkien, as I say, when he was young, he was kidding. When he was old, he meant it. So he took Beowulf very, very seriously as history, and I'm sure he was right to do so. Well, Dr. Shippey, you know, that kind of leaves us with the question, how, how should we view the poem Beowulf? Should we take it seriously? Should we take certain parts of it seriously? Well, uh, I would say it is basically a stratified poem. 
uh, we all know that the main events are three big fights between Beowulf and Grendel, Beowulf and Grendel's mother, Beowulf and the dragon. Three fights. But before the first fight, there's a long introduction. In between the first and second fights, there's a long interlude. In between the second and third fights, there's actually kind of two interludes as Beowulf leaves Denmark and once he arrives in Sweden. And then after the third fight, there's a long wind down. So we've actually got kind of seven parts. Three are the fights, four is the background. And I think it is a, a demonstrable fact that the poet spent more time and more lines on the interludes and on the historical elements than he did on the fantasy. So obviously, you have to take them both into consideration and not just concentrate on the fantasy. That's fascinating. That makes perfect sense. Now, you know, when we talk about the North before the Vikings, what what time period are we actually talking about here? Well, we had a stroke of luck there. Uh, I think one of the reasons why people have been reluctant to uh, take it as history is they say, well, you, you can't do history without dates and without documents. And Beowulf doesn't refer to documents and it doesn't give any dates. But we do have one very vital piece of information. Something which is mentioned, oh, several times in the poem is uh, a disaster. Uh, Beowulf's uncle, king of the Yat, his name is Higelak, uh, he uh, went on a basically a, a kind of early style Viking raid down to the Netherlands and it got completely creamed. Um, you know, basically, uh, it looks like no survivors. Uh, the poem says that Beowulf actually did survive, but it also says that he swam home from the Netherlands to Sweden carrying 30 suits of armor on his back, and I don't believe that, and nor does anybody else. So uh, there was this disaster, and as it happened, because this took place in what is now the Netherlands, it got recorded. It got recorded uh, by, uh, well, by three different writers, actually. But the first of them was uh, Gregory of Tours, who wrote his History of the Franks. And what he tells us is that this disaster, and he gives the name of the leader, which he spells as Hlochileikos, which is his attempt to go for Hugileikas, which is probably what he was called in his own time. Um, he uh, he uh, uh, dates it as in the reign of uh, the Frankish king. Um, what was his name? Theodoric. Uh, and that means it's between 511 and 538. But I would say also that it's rather late in that period because he entrusted command of the army to his son, Theudebert, and he must have been old enough to look good, at least, as a general. So most people say they got 511 to 38, and they say 525, which is the middle period. But I think it's perhaps a bit later than that. Let's say 530. So we're looking at the early 6th century, and that's, shall we say, 250 years, 270 years before the start of the Viking era. So um, if we didn't know that, um, we'd be in trouble. But since we do know that, and we have convincing evidence from three different sources, which is important, then I think we can say that uh, the events of Beowulf take place uh, in the years before and after 530. That's very interesting. So, so going back, what you know for context, yeah, I suppose in other parts of of Europe, well, what was going on in the 
530s. Uh, and also, what do we know was going on in Scandinavia during that period? One of the things that also got me writing the book was a conversation with uh, uh, Professor Franz Haskind, who is Professor of Archaeology at Uppsala University. And I'd like to say right away that uh, I've had a lot of help from Scandinavian archaeologists. You know, literary critics are usually kind of mean and jealous and hug information to their bosoms. But the archaeologists answered my questions. They sent me stuff I'd never seen otherwise. They, they told me a great deal. But the first of these, as I say, was Professor Heskin. And we'd been to a conference and we listened to a session on Beowulf, which was dreadful, actually, rotten. Um, and we sat looking at each other. And um, I said something about... Uh, I think it's something about the um, a, 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 a phrase near the start of Beowulf when it says that uh, the king of the Danes took away the mead benches from many tribes. And I said, that's nobody's, nobody else says anything like that, but it's obvious what it means, isn't it? If you take away the mead benches, then in that world, the mead hall where the, the, the king and his followers drink, that's the administrative and cultural center. And if you take the mead benches away, it doesn't exist anymore. And that means that particular community has lost its independence. So actually, we're looking at a roll-up process in which uh, you know a dominant tribe starts taking over the other tribes and taking away their mead halls and their mead benches. And Professor Haskin looked at me and he said, that's exactly what we're finding. And I thought, blimey, um, what do you mean? And what he has, in fact, spent a lot of time studying is what he calls smashed halls, halls which have not been plundered. They've been completely smashed. I mean, deliberately, uh, you know, the, the, the timbers taken up, the roof pulled down, uh, and a, a kind of ritual element, even... Uh, Glass beakers and stuff like that, which must have been expensive, smashed and thrown in, thrown into the into the hole. So uh, he said, "Yeah, you know, what 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 I'm saying is that uh, there is strong archaeological evidence for um, a takeover, uh, certainly in Denmark, probably in Sweden, in which uh, the a dominant tribe rolls up all the others and says to them, basically, okay, you you haven't got a mead hall anymore.'" Uh, you'll have to come to my mead hall and you'll drink my mead and you'll answer to me. And, of course, maybe this is a coincidence, uh, but the first thing that happens in Beowulf is Hrothgar says, King, King of the Danes, I'm going to build a bigger hall than uh, anyone has ever seen before. Of course he does. He's got to, go, he's got to take in all these new guys. Um, he, needs a, he needs a gigantic hall now. Yeah. And then they found one. Well, they found more than one. They found... I'm not quite sure, perhaps as many as half a dozen. Um, and they were all in the right place. Beowulf says that the king of the Danes is also the leader of the Schildings, uh, uh, the tribe. Uh, and the Schildings have taken over the Helmings and the Brondings and the Wilfings and, you know, everybody else like that. Um, but uh, the Danish legends don't say Schildings, they say Skildungs. Same, same word, different pronunciation. And the Danish legends uh, are dead certain. The place that the Schildings or the Skildungs lived was a place they called Hledragather or Hledro or Hledra, all the same word, but spelled differently. And it, it's been 
accepted for a long time that that is a little village, a tiny village, a hamlet, not far from Copenhagen, called Gamla Leira. And everybody, till quite recently, said, oh, you know, it's all baloney. There's nothing at Leira. You can just look around. There isn't anything there. Forget it. There's some, just some grave mounds. All right. Um, and then, as I understand, and this is one of my informants told me this, some guy strolled into Roskilde Museum and said, hey, look what I found. Now, I don't know what it was he found, but the archaeologist said, hmm, that's funny. And they went and they started, as archaeologists do, digging and uh, I, I really can't go through the, the whole procedure because I don't even understand it. But the first thing they did was they found a, an enormous hall near Leira at a place called Misselhuygård. But that was sort of Viking era. And then they found another one at about 100 yards away, which was pre-Viking and indeed was early 6th century, just the period that Beowulf is talking about. And, uh, well, they keep finding them. And if you want to see one, just Google King's Hall Leira, L-E-J-R-E, because the Danes who take archaeology seriously have built a, a replica of it. And it's enormous. It's like a cathedral. It's not the hall of, of the Beowulf era. It's, it's from the Viking era. But the Beowulf era hall is pretty near as big. Um, so clearly this place, Leira, was a power center for hundreds of years, well before the Viking era and extending into the Viking era. And so uh, the Danish legends are very strongly confirmed. And don't forget, it's not very long ago that people were saying, oh, this is all baloney. We don't have to believe any of this. Well, they were wrong. So that's one very important piece of evidence uh, to say that the legends uh, have a basis of truth. And, th and, and then going on from that, there are... <laughs> There are quite a lot of others. Um, as I say, I had a lot of help from archaeologists, and they kept telling me things which uh, really uh, just 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 fitted the story, is all I can say. I think in my book, I mentioned the word coincidence six times. And I say, well, of course, this could be a coincidence. This could be a coincidence. Maybe they're all coincidences. But when you get to six coincidences, you start thinking, um, perhaps they're not coincidences. Actually... Maybe these are reflections of the truth. So and that's what I think. Um, what should I say about other uh, uh, bits of evidence? Um, it probably helps to remember that this period, round about the year 530, shall we say, in Britain is the age of Arthur. It's the age of King Arthur. Well, uh, I don't know whether you've got to believe in King Arthur or not, but uh, the kings that Beowulf talked about are contemporaries of King Arthur, if there was a King Arthur. And both in Britain and in Denmark, you can say that these are times of great stress, of uh, extreme, uh, well, difficulty. And there are several reasons for that. And there are several uh, kinds of evidence. I, I go into this in, in the book, you know, quoting the archaeologists as carefully as I can. But, um, well, uh, you could say that uh, in the sort of late Roman period, the Roman Empire was bleeding gold into Scandinavia from, I don't know, trade. Maybe it's mercenary, mercenaries sending their wages back home, something like that. But you get strong evidence of rich graves, you know, people buried with, you know, with large amounts of gold and silver. 
and then it stops. And uh, you wonder what's made it stop. What's happened? And my my uh, my phrasing uh, was that uh, sometime round 5.30, for Scandinavia, the roof fell in. There was a kind of overall disaster, a really serious disaster. And one of the archaeologists uh, whom I, I, I mentioned, he, uh, he said he thought it was the central cultural trauma for Scandinavia, and it took them a long time to get over it. Well, uh, the causes of the disaster, well, should we say, like everything, it's multi-factor. But one thing we can be quite sure about, dead sure about, is that uh, in 535, there was an enormous volcanic eruption somewhere, probably in Central America. And this threw cubic kilometers of dust and ash into the atmosphere, and this produced a giant dust veil across the sun. And this was recorded everywhere from China to, uh, well, to Ireland. Um, and uh, it, was a, it, it meant there was no summer. Um, you know, one of the big ideas of Norse mythology is the fimble winter, the winter which never comes to an end, the winter where there's no summers. Well, that's what they got. The, the details are very uncertain because there are probably more than one eruption, actually. But you could say that um, there was a dust veil across the sun in the year 536. The eruption's 535. The sun's obscured 536. And this was bad for everybody. But in Scandinavia, with its uh, short growing season and its kind of marginal agriculture, it was a complete disaster. And some people reckon that half the population of Scandinavia died of hunger, died of famine. Um, so that was one thing that went wrong. Uh, meanwhile, we have the, 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 the military disaster of Higelac. Meanwhile, we also have um, the Justinian plague, which may have made its way uh, north from Byzantium. And uh, uh, there, are other, uh, there are other factors. And that's the central cultural trauma. Um, oh, one factor I forgot to mention. During the late Roman Empire, uh, um, the empire's bleeding gold to Scandinavia, then it stops. And that is a disaster, especially for the kind of upper classes. Um, they weren't interested in trade, really. They were interested in prestige, and they weren't getting the prestige items. And that must have been, well, like I say, um, that perhaps made them I think I think one of the archaeologists said that uh, it meant that they were so distressed by this that gold came to have a kind of supernatural glamour about it, and that's what they're really interested in. And where are you going to get gold from? Well, uh, a dragon's treasure would be a good place, wouldn't it? Um, that's what the the kind of big scene is at the end. Um, so uh, uh, disaster, cultural trauma. Um, and what Beowulf actually gives us in very great detail, in great detail, is that uh, during this period of distress and poverty, the ruling houses of Denmark and Sweden and Beowulf's own country, Goth Gothland, the Yeatas, um, they fought like the Kilkenny cats until there was only the tails left. Um, the uh, Danish dynasty 
according to Beowulf and the legends which are associated with it, it wiped itself out. No survivors. Um, the uh, uh, Swedes and the Yats fought a kind of vendetta uh, in which uh, you know they took turns to kill each other's kings. I forget quite how many they managed to, to, to kill, but really at the end of that, we're told that uh, Beowulf was alive, but we don't really believe that because there's not much corroboration for him as a character. He's a, he's a fairy tale character. Um, but the only person who seems to have been left alive was the King of the Swedes, um, who, uh, who you know, was, uh, was remembered fairly well. But you could say that during that period, and I would put this as uh, kind of 520 to maybe 570, um, it was just a period of, of continuous warfare. Um, and in the end, uh, um, uh, there must have been a kind of exhaustion settle over the region. There was nobody left. Now, Dr. Shippey, is it fair to say that what we find in the archaeology, you know, based off of largely based off of your conversations with with archaeologists, is it fair to say that that is in alignment with what Beowulf itself tells us, or does the poem not necessarily align well with the archaeology? No, they align very well indeed. That's uh, that's uh, important, I think. For instance, um, at the start of Beowulf, this is at it were the pre five thirty period. Um, uh, we're told that the kings of the Danes establish kind of hegemony over the the area, and that's definitely corroborated by the archaeology. Before uh, this period, should we say, you know, four fifty or so, um, the, the the Danes were fighting each other all the time, uh, and we've got all these weapon dumps, smashed weapons, which have been offered to the gods. But then it stops, and it stops because somebody has got control of the area. In fact, what, I, what I'm saying really is that these people stop saying we're Schildings, we're Helmings, we're Wilfings. They say we're Danes. Uh, and Danes, I think, means flatlanders. We are the flatlanders. And Denmark is actually mostly flat as a pancake. So uh, that, that's a fair thing to say. But this is then a process of state formation. It's tribes turning into a nation or being forced into a nation, you might say. So that's one powerful bit of corroboration. Um, Professor Nersman, um, I've forgotten which university he's at, I'm afraid, he uh, said that uh, by about the year 500, it's clear that uh, the Danes had established a Pax Danorum, a Danish peace over the whole area of, well, most of modern Denmark. And there's another thing. Um, the Swedes and the Yats fighting each other like Kilkenny cats. Well, at the end of the poem, the, uh, the, the Yats, with Beowulf dead, with their king dead, are looking forward with foreboding to being taken over by the Swedes. And they have been. That's why, you know, the, the head city of the Yats is now Gothenburg or Jutteborg. And it's in Sweden. If the Yerts had won, then Stockholm would be in Jutland or Jutland. But the, the Swedes obviously won the war against the, 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 the Jutar, the people in southern Sweden. North Sweden beat South Sweden. And um, Professor Rundquist, uh, he um, 
wrote a book called Mead Halls of the Eastern Yats. And it was a funny book because there weren't any. He said, we haven't found any yet. But he said, well, I know how to start looking, which is to find archaeological clusters uh, where you find a lot of things. And like the people at Lyra, you go and have a look. And of course, that's what they found. But what is really striking is that um, they're looking at archaeology over a long period, okay? But he says there's a kind of discontinuity. There's quite strong continuity from the Roman period up to, well, about the year 550. And then it stops. And it looks as if all these places have changed hands. And as he says, quite moderately, he says, in the Dark Ages, land did not usually change ownership in an undramatic fashion. In other words, <laughs> you couldn't buy it. You'd got to, well, you, you've got to kill the occupants and take over. And that looks, and that looks as if it's what, uh, that's what happened. And I'll say one more thing, which really <sighs> kind of upset me. Um, in Beowulf, right at the end, there's a guy looking forward to, to trouble, and he says, well, you know, uh, uh, we're all going to get killed, and, uh, and uh, it will be left for the, uh, the, the, the eagle and the raven and the wolf, and they will eat the corpses. Yeah, um, at Upokra, which is in the Beowulf area down in South Sweden, they found, uh, of course, a, a hall which had been burned down with the people still inside it, and the burned bodies were still lying in the hall, but they'd been left they hadn't been buried, and in fact, they'd been eaten by dogs. And I thought, yeah, well, being left on the battlefield for the raven, that's kind of you know, heroic. But being left in the ruins to be eaten by the town stray dogs, that's just kind of squalid, isn't it? Um, but it looks as if what the Beowulf poem says is going to happen is exactly what did happen. Um, it was. They were, I think the archaeologists are very moderate in their language, but they say it was an extremely stressful period. Yeah, that's right. It was an extremely stressful period marked by um, mass murder and non-burial of the dead and, and all that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, both at the start in the kind of early four, 400s, I guess. No, so maybe... Um, yeah, it, it, at the start in the kind of 400s, we have a corroboration. And at the end, in the kind of mid-500s, again, we have a corroboration. So uh, the, the archaeological pattern um, is actually uh, very closely matched by Beowulf. There's one thing that's different, though, which is that uh, I've been saying, you know, we got famine, we got uh, um, poverty, we got lack of gold and so on. But Beowulf sees it all just as dynastic warfare. He's only interested in the feuds and the vendettas, but he does tell us an awful lot about them. And, and the funny thing is, they interlock. He tells us about Danish kings, he tells us about Swedish kings, he tells us about Yeatish kings, of whom there's practically no other memory, but he has them all. You can make a kind of timetable out of the whole thing. And indeed, Tolkien did just that. Um, I thought that was going a bit far myself, but, uh, but he did just that. He put a date on everything, and then he fiddled with it a bit more and changed the date. But yeah, the, he, he was right in principle. You can at least get the sequence of events 
quite when they were, well, that's not so easy. So, yeah, uh, uh, I think it's striking uh, yeah. how Beowulf and archaeology fit together. Now, but, Dr. you know, Shippey, who reads the archaeology? Well, now, Dr. Shippey, so I'm curious. The poem Beowulf is about Scandinavia, yet, you know, Scandinavia in the 530s. But when was it written? No doubt much later. And, and why was it written? What was the motivation uh, for, you know, a, a readership being interested in uh, these unique events of the past? Well, that's, that's a great question. One of the things which made Beowulf a complete failure as a national epic is it never mentions England or Britain. And the poet doesn't seem to have ever heard of them, actually. But there are some characters, well, not many, but who figure both in the poem and if they're the same person, they turn up in English history as well. One of them is uh, uh, Hengist. And I should say Hengist, not Hengist, because Tolkien always made a point of saying Hengist. Okay, for philological reasons. But he uh, uh, appears in the poem, uh, and it's quite prominent in the poem, uh, but he's also the legendary founder of uh, the Kingdom of Kent, Hengist and Horsa. He's even on the great seal of the United States of America as the kind of great, a great founder figure. So um, that looks as if there was an emigration from, well, by people including Hengist, from South Scandinavia. Okay. And then another character in Beowulf, who is really quite trivial, is called Hrothmund. Well, there's only two people in uh, Anglo-Saxon records called Hrothmund. And perhaps they're the same person. And Hrothmund was an ancestor of the kings of East Anglia. Well, and there's a third one, which uh, I take credit for myself. I said the kings of the Yat are completely unknown, uh, and the ancestor of them is called Hrethel. And nobody in Anglo-Saxon history is called Hrethel. But there's two places in Yorkshire, in an area which used to be called Gillingshire, and which, anyway... Uh, there are two places in Yorkshire which preserve the name of Hrethel, Riddlesden, and I forget the other one. And I would suggest then that in this period of serious warfare, the losers emigrated. So Hengist, the Jute, goes to Kent. Hrothmund, the Dane, goes to East Anglia. And the Yats, Beowulf's people, go to North Yorkshire and settle in the area which was once called in Getlingum, the place of the little Yeats. So that would be taking place in the later 6th century. But that explains why a poet might be interested in these events, because it was part of his history. You know, it was, it was quite possibly part of his family history. If he was, in fact, well, I don't know, a big argument about, about where he came from. But if he was a Yorkshireman like me, for instance, then um, he would be particularly interested in the history of the Yats, who were forgotten by everybody else. So that's, uh, that's an explanation of, uh, you know, why they might be interested. Um, and uh, as for the point of it, which is, you know, I can only say this. Tolkien said, you've got to stop thinking Beowulf was an epic. It was a dirge. It starts with a funeral. It ends with a funeral. It's a dirge for Beowulf. But I would say it's also a dirge for Scandinavia. This is what happened to us. 
This is what went wrong. This is our great historic disaster. And it's all caused by, well, by politics um, and by uh, by uh, these vendettas and so on and all the other things as well. Kind of a perfect storm, really. Everything went wrong at once. So that, uh, that explains another thing. When the Vikings arrived on the coasts of, uh, of England in, what was it, uh, people normally say the, the attack on Lindisfarne, which is, I think, 789. But there was an earlier one, 787, near where I live. Um, okay. Uh, it, it was a terrible shock. Everybody said, gosh, this can't possibly happen. It hasn't happened. It, 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 we've been here living in peace for 250 years and nothing like this has ever happened before. Wrong. Because actually, during the Roman period, seaborne raiding from the continent to England was normal. The Romans had signal stations all along the coast. They, they had a, a special officer at the count of the Saxon shore to keep off the Saxons. So actually, it was perfectly normal. The surprising thing is not that the Vikings arrived. The surprising thing is that everybody was surprised. And why were they surprised? Because it had stopped. It had stopped for 250 years, about. Alcuin, who comments on this, says 350, but I think he, he got that wrong. It's about 250. It just stopped. Why did it stop? Well, I think, as I say, the roof had fallen in, and uh, it must have created a lot of confidence among the ruling classes. Uh, they must have been, uh, the population was way down. They'd got other things to worry about. They weren't ready to go raiding yet. So I, I think that was, uh, that, uh, the poem in a way explains a historical non-event, mm. a long historical non-event, no raiders, no trouble. Indeed. Indeed. What? Uh, well, I could say more about that, but, uh, <laughs> well, Dr. Shippey, this has been just wonderful. So fascinating. And I'm, I'm glad we could explore this on the podcast. Um, you know, the last question that I'll, I'll ask you today is, you know, kind of in closing, you know, what does Beowulf have to say about history? Sort of, if listeners were to take away a few things from our conversation today, what should those things be? Well, uh, one, I think, is that uh, it's telling us uh, indirectly uh, about state formation. It's about the creation of modern nations out of what were, you know, continuously feuding tribes. Um, and uh, it also tells us uh, uh, about this central cultural trauma about how things went very bad and it took a long time to recover. Um, and uh, it's that long recovery time, which is, which explains to some extent the fact we don't know anything about it. We don't know anything about it because the Scandinavians weren't bothering anyone. <laughs> that, that, was, that became very unusual later on, but they hadn't got the, the resources. And I'd say one other thing, which is just me actually, but I noticed that the first raids on Britain didn't come from Denmark, which is just over the over the sea, you know. They came from Norway. Uh, and we, we got good evidence for that. And I can only think that um, if you sail west from Bergen, say, on the Norwegian coast, you hit the Shetland Islands. And if you then go down the Shetlands, the Orkneys, the Hebrides, sail down between Ireland and Britain, you know, you're in sight of land all the way. You can land for water. You can, you know, it's a long trip, but it's, it's quite a safe one. And I think, um, I think that's what happened. And it's significant, I think, 
that it came from Norway because Norway had stayed out of all this trouble. I mean, Norway was lightly populated. It got a, you know, no doubt it had an economy based on hunting and fishing, and they weren't affected the way the Danes and the Swedes were. So they were the first people to get back on their feet. Um, and it was their success as raiders which encouraged the other Scandinavians to uh, get themselves together. So I think it gives you a, quite a lot of, uh, quite a good picture of uh, a collapse and then a recovery. Um, and in a way, the poem is about politics. I know it's a fantasy. Yes, yes, yes. It's got dragons in it. Right, right. Um, not arguing about that. But it's actually really, I think, quite clear-sighted about politics. Um, some of the things which people say in the poem strike me as uh, almost like an op-ed piece in a modern paper. They're saying what's happened and what we can expect now. Um, and they say it very well and very clearly. So uh, I, I would say that uh, Beowulf, apart from being a fantasy and apart from being a historical poem, is also a political poem. It's talking about major political shifts. Um, so that's what that's what I think we should we should think about. Well, Dr. Tom Shippey, this has been a delight. I'll include a link where folks can find more information out about your book in the description of this episode. Um, but before I let you go, um, just so that we know which links to include in the show notes, uh, we want to be sure we don't miss anything. Where can listeners, you know, get a copy of the book and where's the best place to follow you and your work? Well, uh, if you put the link up to the blog post, which the publishers have done, uh, that will that will tell you how to get it. Though I just found out today that uh, they haven't uh, got the stock in UK warehouses yet. I've got them. Uh, you know, I've got my free copies here. And uh, if we were vi on video, I could show it to you. But uh uh, there's been some glitch, I suppose, at the uh, the distribution center, but it's it's out. It is circulating in the U.S. and the U.K. and um, uh, it should be if you if you follow the link, you you'll 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 find out how to how to locate it. Wonderful, and we will. And actually, the other way you can do it. Oh yeah. The other way you can do it is just Google Shippy plus you know what did I say? Uh, uh, Beowulf and the North before the Vikings, and it'll bob up. Perfect. That is perfect. And we'll include a link to that blog article entitled Beowulf and the North Before the Vikings, uh, published by Arc Humanities Press. We'll put that in the description of this episode. Dr. Shippey, it's always a pleasure speaking with you here on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Well, thanks very much for asking me. And uh, I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you listeners for tuning in to another episode of the history of Vikings. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor and leave a positive rating and review on Apple podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. Tune in again for another episode. Mm -hmm.